Okay, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, but before we go there today, I want to, uh, I asked, um, I told Marley I wanted to make this announcement uh, kind of to lay the groundwork as we go into the new year. So starting the first Sunday of February, and, uh, and we've talked about doing this for um, really quite a while, and um, we just decided that, you know, this is a good time. The beginning of a new year is a good time to, to do new things. And so what I want to present to you is uh, that starting the first Sunday of February, we're going to change our children's classes a little bit. We're not going to really change the classes. We're going to change the times. And what we're going to do is go to more of a Sunday school format so that our kids' classes are going to meet from 9.15 to 10.15. The age groups will still be the same, and uh, they'll still meet in the same rooms that they meet in next door. The adults will move over here. The adults and youth will move over here. And one day, uh, when we get through all of the process with the city, you know, our plan, we've got an after-school program that we run four days a week, and there has been money granted for a building. Um, and so one day we'll have more room to do uh, more divided things or more segregated things. Um, and I want to just share a little bit about why we're doing this. And it's really part of my, it's part of the message that I'm going to share with you today. And we're going to still be in Ephesians. You know, we started in Ephesians 4 last Sunday. And we're going to continue in that. And so um, everything will stay the same, except we'll move our classes from 9.15 to 10.15. And then we will all worship together at 10.30. And there's a couple of reasons why we're doing that. First of all, um, and I know I've talked to you guys about this before. Um, there is, uh, in our culture, in our nation, in the church, it's, it's not just in the church, but it's throughout our culture. Um, if you want to call it dysfunction, <laughs> you can call it dysfunction. People have lots of names for it. Um, I know in the kids, the, with the kids we work with after school, uh, I say we, I don't really work with them. Uh, uh, Caleb and his volunteers do. But in uh, just being around those kids and interacting with those kids and talking with them and knowing, you know, they don't, uh, many of them, if not most of them, don't have fathers in their home. Um, their homes can be described as dysfunctional. They are officially labeled at risk. Uh, and that carries all kinds of connotations with it. And the reason I bring that up is because that's kind of a microcosm of, of the greater issues that we see in our culture. If you study or if you read about the church, you probably don't like I do, but I read a lot of stuff about the church and what's happening in the church. And, you know, right now, this, uh, the, the buzzword is post-Christian America. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of survey companies, Barna and Thomas Rainier, and these guys whose business and life is to study the church. And they've done this for decades. And so, you know, now everybody's saying we're living in post-Christian America. Um, and I don't doubt that that's true. Um, but 
But what does that really mean? Uh, and what that means is, um, and the statistics prove this out, what that means is that church attendance is becoming less important. Uh, the church faith is becoming a less less part of our the fabric of our nation and our culture. Secularism is on the rise. And so, <clears throat> without boring you with a bunch of dry information, the bottom line is this. The fabric of our faith, um, you know, our nation being founded on Judeo-Christian principles, whether that means we were ever a Christian nation or not, I don't know. That's not really the point. The point is we're living today in a culture where Jesus Christ, faith particularly in him and the church, is waning. It's on the decline. So, as the church, you now we're the church. So, what do, we, what do we do with that? What do we do about that? Do we just sit around and wring our hands? Do we just sit around and fret and wonder, you know, what's going to happen? And the answer to that is no, we don't do any of those things. What we do is what the Bible commands us to do. We continue to, to do what Jesus told us to do, to go and to make disciples. And so, you know, what I've always said, parents, the most important disciple you'll ever make is your child. It starts in us, with our children, with our families, and it moves out from there. Your heart is your Jerusalem. Jesus said, go and preach this gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. And in, in, in one way of thinking about it, your heart is your Jerusalem. Just like we say, Taylor is our Jerusalem. You know, we as a church can't worry about trying to save the world if, if we're not working in our own city, in our own community. So our first priority as a church is the city we're planted in. It's in Taylor, in East Williamson County. Well, it's the same as personally. The first person that you need to make sure is walking and following Jesus is yourself. We check our own heart, and then as parents, as, you know, we... We do that with our children. We help our children grow up as pastors. We looked at First Corinthians or Ephesians chapter four, where Jesus said, "He said I, uh, the Scripture says He gives gifts to men, and and these gifts He gave some apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. To what purpose? To the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so, as a church." As the church, and this is exactly what Jesus did in a very succinct way when he gave us the Great Commission. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I've commanded. Now, he didn't tell us when that was going to end, did he? He just said, go do it. And he, he has not, to this day, said, stop doing that. So the command has gone forth, and the command is still there. So we read Matthew 28, and we read the Great Commission. Well, what does that mean to me? Well, it means that I need to obey that commandment. Well, what does that look like in my life? Does that mean I need to 
you know, get my gospel tracks and go hit the neighborhood and start knocking on doors. And no, it means you first begin to look inward in your own heart. If you're, if you're a parent, that you realize that God blessed you with a child and you have been given a responsibility to disciple that child. If you're a pastor like I am, I have to look at my own heart every, I started to say every week, but it seems like it's a whole lot more than that. Constantly, we're looking. We're examining. And so the Bible says as a pastor, my, my responsibility is to equip you for the work of ministry. And what I want, what I want to present to you and I want, what I want you to understand is that equipping is much more than just you hearing a sermon on Sunday. It's more than coming to the Bible study on Wednesday. It's more than just the church events and activities. Part of my equipping you is to encourage you and to exhort you and to challenge you to walk out your faith daily. What does that mean? It means more than just be nice to people. Be nice to people, okay? But it, it means that you have been charged with becoming a disciple, of being a disciple, of walking a disciple lifestyle. And if you're a parent, that you model that and you teach and you train your children from the womb up to do the same thing. That it's not the responsibility of the church to disciple your children. It is the responsibility of the church to come alongside you, to equip you, and to encourage you and walk with you as you take responsibility to disciple your children. And one of the ways that, w- that we want to endeavor to help you do that is, is through providing Christian education or Sunday school or we called it children's church. But we also want this, we want this for the whole family. So right now we have a Sunday school class for adults. And if you're an adult and you have children, what are your children going to do? Hang out until church and then they go to children's church. So what we want to do is create an intergenerational worship experience because we're about intergenerational. So let's go back to this issue of what's happening in our nation and in our culture and in the church. And this has been borne out by Christian studies and secular studies and everything in between. I do a lot of work with social service agencies, and so I deal a lot with people that are in the social service industry, not from a Christian point of view, but just from a totally secular point of view. And this is something that is just coming at us from all directions. And this is what the social service people, the social service industry is is telling us that we've got to give our kids more intergenerational experiences. Kids are growing up in fatherless homes. They're left to themselves and they are basically running around with kids their own age and they have no one speaking into their life. Well, they might have a grandmother, they might have a mother, but you know, they disrespect them because they just want to do their own thing. 
but there's not a variety at every aspect of their life. There's not people speaking into their lives or modeling these things. So this idea of of the benefit of intergenerational relationships, the world has figured this out. I mean, the world's figured it out. And, And man, there is grant money and there is programs galore out there to try to facilitate intergenerational relationship, which I think is great. But I'm looking at that. I sit in these meetings and I listen to these people and these agencies talk about this, but I'm sitting there and I'm going, but that's all well and good. But that's still not the answer apart from the gospel. The gospel is the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so here we are as the church, and what should the church be doing? The church should be facilitating these things. The church should be teaching our children, not just in a classroom or with a curriculum, but by example. So that when our children are born, when they come out of the womb and they come their first Sunday to church, they enter into an environment that is built for, meant for, designed for all ages. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to give Kool-Aid and pizza at the end of big church. It means that our children are going to grow up and they're going to learn what it means to worship God with the family of God. They're going to learn what it means to worship God with, with dad and mom or grandma or aunt or uncle or my neighbor here or my brother or my sister here. So that when, uh, you know, I've said this before, we live in a time now where in the church, you can go to churches and you can drop your kid off at the nursery window. And for all practical purpose, your kid can spend the next 18 years in that church with basically interacting with no one except children their own age. And then when they turn 18 and they're out of youth group and they've exhausted being youth monitors and youth volunteers, and somebody says, hey, dude, you're 32 years old. Why are you still in youth group? Well, that's, you know, all I've ever known. You need to go to big church. Well, I don't, I don't do big church. It's like, where, where do we get big church? I mean, where's that in the Bible? Where's big church in the Bible? The church is the church. It's not the adult church, the child church. It's, it's the church. And we've done people a disservice and we've, we've turned them out. We've, I was a youth pastor. I had to kick people out of my youth group because they were too old to be there. I said, you can't, you can't keep coming to the youth group. You've got to transition. That's the term we'd use. You need to transition to big church, to adult church. But if you enforce this segregation mentality on a kid for, for 18 years, 19 years, 20 years of their life, and then you just drop them into big church, they, you know what they do? They do exactly what the numbers tell us that they're doing. They, they just leave. They depart. Mom and dad can't make me go to church anymore. I'm, I'm in college now. I'm living on my own now. So, I, you know, I'm gone. So, what I'm talking to you about is a long-term mentality. I'm not talking to you about a short-term fix. 
I'm talking to you about the church, specifically Christ Fellowship Church, because this is what's happening in the church, capital C, particularly in America. You understand that we have unique problems in America that other parts of the world where the churches don't necessarily have. A lot of these things are already integrated in because it's just part of their culture. We just, our culture's kind of morphed into this thing where we segregate everyone and everything based on age or whether you're divorced or whether you're single or whether you're, you know, sick. And we've got groups for everybody and, and which is fine to have that. But what we see in the Bible is that the Bible calls us to come together. In, in fact, right here, look, look what it says in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 16, talking about the body of Christ, growing up into all things into him who is the head. Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Do you see that language? Look at verse 16. The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. That is a picture of unity. That is a picture of oneness. That is literally a picture of the human body. I mean, your elbow joint and your knee joint holding your legs and your arms together, enabling you to walk and to function. And those parts and those joints supplying what the other needs. That's integration. That is us being together. Well, how do we do that? We do that together. We teach, we train, we learn, we live, we grow together so that the body of Christ looks like what Paul describes there in verse 16. And the point of raising our children is to raise them up to maturity in Christ. And that's a lifelong process. I'm still in the process of growing up into him in all things. I'm 54 years old, but I'm still growing up in Christ. I am still maturing in Christ. I got grandbabies that are weeks old. They've just started the growing up process. In every sense of the word, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So what I'm saying is, this isn't just for children, this is for all of us, because we're all growing up. We're all being matured. But I do want us to understand that there is specific commandments given for children, for parents, And so as a congregation, we want to value the blessing our children are. And we want to see them as the next generation that will carry the torch of the gospel. We're commanded to bring them up and to teach them and to train them in the Lord. This is how God will fulfill his promise to a thousand generations. People get kind of nervous when... Babies are cooing and crying and squirming. 
And you know, there's an appropriate time. That's one reason we're going to do a parenting seminar. There's an appropriate time to take your child out if he's or she is needs that. But what I want us to understand is let's see children for what they are. The Bible says they're a blessing. They're not an inconvenience. They're not an annoyance. They're a blessing from the Lord. And look around, church. We are blessed here. I mean, we have got... We, God has just blessed us with little babies, with new life. And there's more that aren't even here today. And there's more on the way. Praise God. We're blessed. Some people say, well, you know, Pastor Jeff, y'all don't have the greatest building. Yeah, I know we don't have the greatest building. And you know, you're pretty hard to find even if you're looking uh, to come to Christ Fellowship. Yeah, I know. I had to give people directions yesterday at the funeral. Thank God for the internet and for GPS, right? Thank the Lord for Google. But I want you to see how blessed we are. Look at these babies. What are these babies? These babies, these babies are going to be your future leaders in the church. That's my hope and my prayer. That our children don't grow up with just a nominal faith. You know what the word nominal means? It means in name only. A lot of people go to church and their faith is nominal. They call themselves. This is, this is a reality. If you talk to people from Europe, they call themselves Christian, but they're not practicing Christians. That's just a, that's just a label. That means I'm a Christian. I'm Christian. It means I'm not Muslim. But I don't go to church. I don't read my Bible, but I'm a Christian. It's what we call nominal Christianity. That's not Christianity. Jesus didn't die so that we could just take the name Christian and call ourselves that, and, and that, that defines our demographic. Jesus died on the cross so that we would obey his command to go to the nations and make disciples, specifically baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. So we see children as a blessing. And as parents, all of us, listen, whether you're a parent or you're not a parent, it doesn't let you off the hook because we're the family of God. So all of us, whether parents, grandparents, family, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, are part of this process of, of bringing the younger up and ourselves being brought up into maturity in Christ. It's to the benefit of us all, and most importantly, it's to God's glory that we make this our practice and that we take seriously the command of Scripture to be equipped to learn and hear and to be taught how to walk properly and so glorify our Father in heaven. And this is what these changes are about. That 
when we look and we see all these babies, besides wanting to make sure that they're safe and sound and, and they come here and they feel welcomed and loved, I look at these babies and I say, where are they going to be in 20 years? When they're 20 years old and nobody's standing up, mom and dad aren't there to make them go to church. When they're 20 years old, where are they going to be? Are they going to be in church worshiping God or are they going to be out doing whatever? I'll tell you where I was at 20 years old. It was not in church. It wasn't. But I'm proud to say that my children are. And they're not here because I make them be here. I've done a lot of things wrong. But it does my heart good to see my three children and my grandchildren here. It just does. And it's not just about our biological families. It's about the family of God. That we all have a part to play to make sure that all of our children and that all of us are welcomed in and that we are all considered and we're all provoking one another to love and to good works so that the body is being built up in love to the glory of God. It's an adjustment, but it's an adjustment that I hope and pray will reap benefits long-term for God's kingdom through the generations. This is not something new. In fact, this has been the practice of the church for many, many centuries. Actually, what we've been doing the last several decades, the last, let's just say the last century, or at least the last three quarters of a century, that really is new. And now... Three quarters of a century later, guess what we're discovering? The experiment didn't work very well. So what are people advocating? Whether they realize it or not, they're, they're advocating that we go back to what God showed us to begin with. And so it kind of is like, well, why did we ever leave that? Well, I don't know. Just what I, when I came into the church, that's the way it was. I mean, that's, that's the way I was taught. That's the way, that's, that's the way you're supposed to, that's the way you build a ministry. Well, who cares if we build a ministry if we're not making disciples? Who cares if we build a ministry today, but we lose the generations? God never said in his word, go build your ministry. He said, do what I tell you to do unto the generations, to your children and your children's children. That means we need to set things in place that are looking forward that will help our children and our children's children. Now, most of you guys are pretty young. And you can't even, you don't even want to think about having grandchildren yet. Some of you aren't even thinking about having children. But I want to encourage you to think in that direction. Because that's, that's how the Bible, that's how Jesus thought. That's how Jesus taught. That's what the scripture teaches us throughout. That we do things and we do them with the purposes of God in mind. And what God does is eternal. 
It's not temporary. So may, may we do this wholeheartedly and may we do this for his glory. So we're going to give you more information in the weeks to come. I apologize we didn't have a bulletin printed today. Uh, Caleb had has been since New Year's Eve day. He's been at the hospital with Luke and he does the bulletin and actually I don't, you know, I got my own things that I do and so I never even thought about a bulletin. But we'll have one next week and we'll give you more information. Uh, again, if you haven't signed up for the parenting seminar, please do that. Uh, it's coming up this Friday and Saturday. We'll provide child care, as Marley said, and a meal on Saturday. So put it on your connection card, drop it on the table back there, and and we will we'll talk more about this as we move toward the first part of February. Amen? January 17th, uh, we're going to have a congregational meeting. Uh, so that Sunday, we'll be able to, you'll have a chance to ask more questions, to talk about it. So uh, put that on your calendar as well. January 17th, we'll have a congregational meeting. We'll uh, give you the financial information and, and let you come and ask any questions you want about anything. Um, everything's on the table. Amen? All right. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we we uh, went through Ephesians chapter 4 last week, starting in verse 1, and went all the way to verse 16. I want to read, um, instead of reading that again, I just want to start at verse 17, and I want us to read this together. Ephesians four seventeen. I, I want to read verse 1 to you from chapter 4 before I start in verse 17. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Verse 17, this I say therefore and testify to the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new Man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Don't walk as the Gentiles, as the pagans, as the heathen, as the unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind, in darkness, in ignorance, and in blindness. So as a church, as the church, we should be about building something that's going to endure. Now, I used to sell foundations. Kind of funny, but I did. I used to sell foundations. And, and one thing you learn really quick 
is that if you don't have a good foundation, your house, it doesn't matter what, it, what it's like from the foundation up. If your foundation goes bad, boy, you are in trouble. So a foundation is very important when we talk about building. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you got that? Jesus Christ is, he's our foundation. He's the rock that it's all built on. And if we're not building on the rock, we're building on the sand and the, and the time and the storms will come and it's going to determine, it's going to expose whether we've built on the rock or whether we've built on the sand. So Jesus Christ is the foundation Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What were the the sorts of work? Gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, stubble. You guys know what happens with wood, hay, stubble, and fire, right? You know what happens with gold and silver in the fire? It's refined. Whereas wood, hay, and stubble is burned up and passes away. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, let me just say this. When I'm talking about these things, building on a foundation and our works, I am not talking about your salvation because you are not saved by works. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You're not saved by works. You're saved for works or you're saved unto works. So one one, uh, example I like to use is contrasting what Paul talks about in the book of Romans and what James talks about in his epistle, the book of James. And James says, you tell me about your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. Paul says we're justified By faith, apart from the deeds of the flesh, or apart from works. We're not justified by works, we're justified by faith. So are James and Paul at odds with one another? Absolutely not. Because think of a tree. So you have a tree. You've got a ground line, and you've got a trunk growing out of the ground, and you've got the branches there. Think of your favorite fruit. I always think of a peach tree because I've got a peach tree in my backyard. So I look at my peach tree, and it's coming out of the ground, and, and come summertime, there's going to be big, fat, juicy peaches on it. And if I didn't know it was a peach tree, I'd have known by the time summer comes, right? Because I'll see the peaches hanging there. And so this is what James is talking about. He says, look, what my faith produces proves my faith. My works prove my faith. I'm not saved by my works, but because I am saved, because I have faith in Jesus, my faith has produced something in my life 
that's visible and tangible. People can see it, hear it, feel it. They know it. It's the fruit of our life. It's Christ in me manifest and made known. Paul is looking at the tree from the ground down. And he's saying the root of the issue is your faith. You are saved by faith. You are justified by faith. And because you are saved, because that root has gone into good soil, because that is the true root, Jesus Christ, that's why you're saved. But what is that salvation going to produce? It's going to produce exactly what James talks about. It's going to produce the fruits of righteousness. It's going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. So they're not talking about two different things. They're talking about the exact same thing. They're just looking at it from different angles. So when I use this language and we talk about building and works being burnt up, I don't want you to be mistaken and think that your salvation is going to be determined by your works. And this is exactly what Paul says here. For those who build with wood, hay, and stubble, what's going to happen in that day? It's going to burn up. Their works, they will experience loss, but they will be saved. Why? Because their salvation wasn't built on, dependent upon their works of wood, hay, and stubble. Their works passed away because they weren't in the Lord. They weren't of the Lord. The only thing that will last is what we do in Christ. What we do out of our flesh, out of our carnal nature, that's wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to pass away. But by the grace of God, we will be saved. So Christ is the rock, the foundation of our faith and our life. A foundation is laid for the purpose of building upon. And so whether a building endures will be determined by its foundation and how that foundation is built upon. And the scripture gives us the pattern for building to endure. So what does the Bible tell us to do? It says teach them to walk. So here's what Paul says. We read it in verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling. Don't walk as the Gentiles. Parents, when you had babies, what was one of the first things you taught them when they got big enough? You taught them to walk. I mean, they're, you know, just barely able to stand up and you're holding them up. Come on, you know, and marching them along, holding their little hands. And one day they're going to get to the point to where they take that first step and you're all excited and you're taking video with your phone and, and, and you even watch them fall down and oh, isn't that cute, you know, and they're crying and no, I'm just teasing. But you teach your kids how to walk, right? And walking, learning to walk is a process. They're not real good at it at first. They're kind of uncoordinated, a little awkward, you know, just the least little Got a little Lego down there on the floor. They step on, they fall down, they tripped over the Lego. Now, you wouldn't trip over the Lego, but your little baby might because they're a little unstable in their walking. So this is the process of growing up, of coming to maturity. And in the beginning, it's, it's, it's very, it's motor skills, it's physical things. I mean, we're not teaching them, we're not teaching them Bible doctrines when they're, 13 months old, we're, we're, we're just trying to help them master walking, right? And not falling down and hurting themselves. And that's the way it should be. Spiritually, it's the same way. 
Someone who's brand new in the Lord, we shouldn't expect them to be able to run a marathon. They're like a newborn baby who's just barely learned how to walk. So we meet them where they are and we help them. So we know where our children are, right? They're, they're, it's obvious. They're small. So we know that we've got to help them grow up. But that doesn't exclude the rest of us because we all need to grow up. And so learning to walk is something that we continue to do. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul addresses children. How do we know children were part of the church? Because Paul writes his letter and he addresses children. And he says, children. He didn't say, hey, parents, go bring your kids in from children's church so I can tell them this. He says, children. He addresses them point blank. Now, remember, this letter is delivered. And someone, they're reading this letter to the church. And he says, he gets to chapter 6. He didn't have a chapter 6 back then, but we have one now. And chapter 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, are you hearing me? Children. 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 Yes, children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he gives... From the commandments, the warning, and the blessing of obeying and honoring your father and mother. God will bless you with long life. And then he says this in verse 4. Fathers, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 4 is a specific command to fathers to bring up their children in the teaching and training of the Lord. It's more than just a warning against provoking them to anger. We often are really quick to say, well, you know, the Bible says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And we leave the rest of the verse out. So we've become really good at pointing out to men, don't provoke your children to wrath but we've left off this command. The most important part of this is bring up your children in the fear and admonition, the nurture, the teaching, and the training of the Lord. Fathers, that's what you are commanded to do. Moms, you're part of that. Especially in our culture today where there are so many moms who don't have a dad present in the home. So guess what? Mom, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But dads, I see a lot of dads out here. Dads, myself included. God commands me to bring up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And he doesn't put any qualifications on that. He doesn't put any exclusions on that. He just commands me to do it. Now, if he commands you to do that, fathers, what should be the responsibility of the church? Should we just say, well, dad, you're on your own. Good luck. If you've got any uh, Bible questions, give me a call, and I'll see if I can help you out there. Or better yet, just go to Google. Just Google it. No. So when the Bible gives a command to fathers, guess what? That command comes right back to the church. Because he uh, already told me as the pastor that I am responsible to equip my 
congregation, I'm responsible as a pastor to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And guess what, Dad? Your chief work of ministry is bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That means that I've got to be there with you to support you, to encourage you, to pray for you, and to hold your hands up if if need be. Now, I can't come to your house and do it for you, and the church is not responsible ultimately to make sure that's done. You are. I am as a father. You are as a father responsible ultimately to make sure that gets done. But you should have the help, the support, the equipping, the encouragement of your church body. And this is the advantage. This is why it is so important for us to be joined to and connected to a church body. Because we are doing this together. There should be no father here who feels like he's on his own trying to bring his family up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We should be available for one another. We should come together. This is why we're talking about this today. It's a challenge, but it's also an encouragement. This is what we, as the body of Christ, are called to do. So the teaching and the training of our children and all of us is that we learn to walk properly. Romans 12 Now, Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So we're to teach them to walk. We're to build, to endure. We're to teach them to walk. We are to bring them to maturity. Ephesians 4.11 says, We are all commanded to be equipped for the work of ministry. That means I am, as a pastor, commanded to equip you, and you are commanded to receive that equipping. So you guys have probably figured this out by now. Coming here to Christ Fellowship on Sunday morning is not about entertaining you. It is about equipping you. I went and saw the new Star Wars movie. It was awesome. Who has not seen it yet? You want me to tell you all about it? I won't do it. Yeah, It was very entertaining. I probably will go see it again. You know what? It was supposed to be entertaining. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Brian. Thanks a whole lot there. Jan was supposed to go with us. I confessed. <laughs> I, let, I, I forgot her. I'm sitting in the movie. I get a text from my wife. Did you pick up Jan? I'm like, oh my God. You know that moment? I mean, I'm in the movie. It's like, oh my God. My kids are like, what happened? I said, I forgot Jan. But I, I ate crow. I went to her face to face and I apologized to her. And I told her, I'm so sorry. Thanks, Brian. I was just getting over that. Yeah. 
Yeah, see, we're just regular people, sometimes too regular. So this is an equipping place. Should it be fun and entertaining? Yeah, in, in some ways, but it's what we're dealing with is serious issues. Raising your children is serious. Taking the gospel to the nations, taking it to your neighbors, to your neighborhood, to your city is serious business. You've got to be equipped to do that. Verses 14 and 15 in Ephesians 4 says, we're commanded to grow up in all things into Christ. That means we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine of the deceitful plotting of men. We need to learn the truth. We need to recognize the truth so that we're not carried away by various things that would want to carry us away. Verse 17, we're commanded to no longer walk in the futility of an unrenewed mind. This is the process, is the renewal of your mind. For many Christians, it's not whether they're saved, it's that they don't comprehend their salvation. And we're trying to get and have more experiences and I want more of this and more of that when in reality, if you have Christ, you have the fullness of the Godhead dwelling inside of you. He is the fullness of God. He is the fullness of God's glory. If the fullness who is Christ lives on the inside of you, what more can God give you? So the problem isn't that you need more of something. The problem is that you need to comprehend the fullness that you already have. And how are you going to do that? You're going to do that by renewing your mind. The enemy can only deceive you to the degree that your mind has not been renewed. So the more your mind is renewed to the truth in Jesus Christ, the less opportunity the enemy has to deceive you. So we're commanded to come out of darkness, out of ignorance, out of blindness, and to walk in the light of Jesus Christ, to walk in the light of a renewed mind. And so God's given us the pattern to do this. Throughout the scripture, I mean from beginning to end, we see the pattern of how this is done from, from what God told Israel to do with the feast to, I mean, all throughout the scripture. And here in Ephesians, Paul writes this, he says, we're to be equipped, we're to be brought up to maturity, we're to walk properly, not in futility, we are to learn, we are to hear, we are to be taught. Look what he says here in verse, oh, let me get back to chapter 4. Look what he says here in verse um, 17. I'm sorry, verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and if you have been taught by him. You have not so learned. We're to learn, we're to hear, we're to be taught. So this is the work of the church in discipleship. We're to apply these things according to the pattern of Scripture. We're to apply them to our lives, to the lives of the members of his body. That's the work of the church. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, though, to bring you up to maturity. It's the work of the Spirit through these means to affect transformation and true spiritual growth to maturity in Christ. 
So I can give you the truth, but I can't make you grow. I can plant a seed in the ground, but I don't make the seed grow. It's the magic God provides, if I can use that word, that makes the seed grow. So we plant the seed of the word. We water and we plant, but it is the Holy Spirit on the inside of you that is going to bring the increase and bring about the transformation to maturity in Christ. That you come to look like what Paul describes in Ephesians 4, 15, uh, in verses uh, 14, that he says that we come to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ, verse 13, to a mature man, The Spirit of God does this. And Paul makes this statement in verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ, which implies that they had been taught. You don't learn if you're not taught. So you'll never learn Christ if you're never taught. And you can hang around church and you can pick up churchy language and churchy ideas and churchy habits and characteristics. And you may even learn about Jesus, but learning about Jesus and learning Christ are two different things. To learn Christ is to know Christ. That knowing and that learning is by the Holy Spirit, and it's not by osmosis. It's by applying the Scripture. It's by abiding in His Word and His Word abiding in you. It's by meditating on His Word and on Him and on the things that are consistent with who He is. So we have to make it our practice. If the practice of our faith is nominal, then we're going to have a nominal faith. If the practice of of the church is nominal, we're going to have a nominal church with nominal disciples. So do we want to be disciples in name only? Do we want to have faith in name only? Or do we want to have something that is real, something that will endure? to the very end do you know what the answer is I know what you want the question is are we willing to put into practice what the scripture shows us so that we can have that and achieve that so this is our intention at CFC that we do not do things nominally in name only but that we in practice walk out the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. And that by doing our small part here and now, I can tell you right now, my goal is not to change the world because (laughs) that would just be foolish. I can't even change Taylor. How am I going to change the world? So we recognize who we are and where we are. But I will tell you this, we should have faith that God can bring change and transformation to this community, to this body of people right here called Christ Fellowship, to the people that we have influence over in our community and outside of our community. We should have faith that God can and will do that if we will be faithful people. And that by doing our small part here and now, we may contribute to a larger reformation and revival in the generations to come. There's a lot of people scared right now, wringing their hands about what's happening in America. And we need to stop that. I want to leave you with an excerpt from an article about post-Christian America written by a gentleman named Russell Moore. 
And I thought this was really a great quote. He says, we are not time travelers from the past. We are pilgrims from the future. We have not come to reclaim something that was lost. We have come to proclaim someone who has found us. So let's stop our hand wringing and our rage venting. Let's reclaim our mission and refrain from reframe our perspective. We have the promises God has made to Christ. We have the spirit. A resurrected Christ has poured out on us. Jesus didn't need, a tradi- didn't need traditional values or American civil religion at Pentecost, and he doesn't need them now. If we take the opportunity to be the church, we may find that America is not post-Christian, but is instead maybe pre-Christian. It may be that this land is filled with people who, though often Christ-haunted, have never known the power of the gospel yet. In any case, that what's important for the church is not so much whether the United States of America is post-Christian as whether, as rather Jesus is, I'm sorry, I can't read. Let me read the last paragraph. In any case, what's important for the church is not so much whether the United States of America is post-Christian as whether Jesus of Nazareth is post-dead. And we know the answer to that. Jesus is alive. He is alive and well, and the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Don't be fearful. Be faithful. Be hopeful. Let's do what this book commands us to do. Let's look around and see the blessing of God in our midst from the youngest to the oldest. Let's understand that we are the body of Christ, that we have been tasked with something that is beyond our imagination and that we are privileged beyond our imagination to name the name of Jesus and to be a part of his eternal plan and purpose. Amen. Let's all stand. So here's my challenge that we would commit to this end that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's begin with the knowledge of that glory filling our own hearts, our own children, our own families in this, our own church. And from there, we'll move out and we'll see where God takes us. Father in heaven, do a work in us that can only be done done by your spirit. Even as you declare in your word, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Deliver us from nominal practices, from nominal faith, and from nominal church. Make us real, make us faithful, and make us committed to those things that will endure to your glory. Show us the way and give us the grace to walk in it. Father, we ask this that your church would bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.